Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling news in the seafood industry. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor, and Rachel Mutter, Editor. So, folks, uh, this week we're going to try to put a little bit of spin on the ongoing coronavirus uh, saga and try to look at what some of the bright spots are and at least take a look at some of the sentiment uh, and how that might be changing. Uh, there is some signs, early signs, that people are getting a bit more optimistic about uh, the potential for business, both in Asia and even in food service. But we'll talk a little bit today about whether or not that is whistling in the dark or whether or not that is uh, going to be some kind of reality. So, um, John, maybe you can talk to us a little bit. We issued two different surveys earlier on this year. One we put out in January. It's our annual Seafood Executive Outlook Survey. And essentially, we just ask uh, top executives in seafood uh, their opinions on what the next 12 months will look like. And right away, as soon as we sent that survey out um, and got the the figures back in around February, uh, we pretty much had to to crumple it up and throw it out the window because as coronavirus began to take hold, it was pretty clear that everything people had said about how things would be going um, was going to be re rewritten. So we sent out a second survey, um, and it, it was definitely a major shift in the way people were, were thinking um, and and fully uh, fully coronavirus related um, by the time it was uh, it, it was all said and done. So, John, what were the biggest changes in how people were were thinking about um, the future of seafood? And again, this was early on in coronavirus. This is before the full extent became clear. Yeah, well, one you know one good example is uh, in the February survey before the virus took hold. Uh, 26% of the executives surveyed said they were confident the economy would grow in 2020. By April, that confidence level had been slashed in half to 13%. So, you know, that just kind of sets the table for much of the rest of the survey, which, um, you know, basically, what else, what else could they say? They just don't see a lot of bright moments ahead. But that was April. And, you know, things have actually improved in some ways since then. And so we don't have any survey uh, beyond that. But, yeah, the, the difference between the February one and the April one were, was stark. Yeah. I mean, that said, though, I think that um, I, I think it's worth noting that it wasn't um, it wasn't a full, complete turnaround and I think that a lot of those underlying trends that people expected uh, continued to to hold. Again, this was relatively early. Uh, it was uh, we we got these responses in April, um, and May was a rough, rough month for everybody, um, and maybe made things a little bit um, a little bit bleaker. With that said, some of the major drivers about M and A, about plans to construct facilities, capex. Yes, they drop sharply, but we're not talking about dropping down to single-digit levels. So, you know, one, for example, was are you planning to build, construct, or expand facilities? Um, 
And in February, there was uh, about 40% said they were, and another 20% they weren't, uh, they weren't sure. And, um, and that actually didn't, didn't dramatically change. It was slightly higher. People were a little less sure. Um, you know, but, but in general, you know, another 31% uh, said they were still going to expand facilities. And I think that's pretty significant, and it does speak to, um, to kind of the, the long-term uh, positive uh, outlook in the sector. And another one, too, they talked about product line or new products. Also, you know, the majority said after uh, coronavirus started, they still said they were going to launch new products. Um, yeah. I think the, the biggest thing, obviously, is coronavirus changed all the, you know, all the, the dynamics. And um, what was interesting is when we, we talked about the pressing, the most pressing challenges, and that was quite interesting because finding qualified staff, interestingly enough, was the biggest concern in February. And that was the biggest concern in last year's survey as well, interestingly enough. Um, but again, overwhelmingly three most pressing challenges. Number one, coronavirus. Number two, seafood consumption. Number three, uh, price pressure from, from retail and food service buyers. So, um, But you, you mentioned, sorry to interrupt, you mentioned M&A too. And um, this goes to your point that, you know, we asked if they expected to see higher or lower levels of M&A in the coming 12 months. And in the February responses, uh, 51% of them said more, more M&A. And in the April, 45% said more M&A. So it didn't really change all that much. And that, that makes sense because even, even in the early days of um, Corona, um, you know, people were thinking, wow, not, not all the companies are going to survive this. So there were, there might be opportunities to pick up players and things like that. So Hey, it just shows that, you know, on, on several fronts, the M&A uh, M um, outlook seems pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, what, one thing that was interesting, too, about um, some of the, uh, the research we've done in our business intelligence division, we got a new report out on uh, investing in seafood, plug. Um, but, uh, but there was a, a significant amount of deals that have taken place uh, over the last 18 months, and even in the first quarter of this year, um, it it continues to be pretty uh, pretty remarkable. Um, there was over 140 M&A deals that we counted in the aquaculture, fisheries, and seafood sectors in the past uh, 19 months. So that is a lot of deals, and those range from from major uh, major deals and mergers like the the Cook Icicle. Uh, deal, um, you know, to, to other smaller uh, bolt-on acquisitions, but um, but that that aspect of the sector, that growth of the sector and cons continued consolidation, the growth of the larger companies, is quite uh, is quite interesting. Um, one thing uh, we spoke to an M&A advisor um, two days ago um, about his view and. You know, one of the things he said was he, he said that, that private equity, inbound interest from private equity companies, particularly American private equity companies, was, um, was getting pretty, pretty significant. And, and one of the quotes he said that I think was very interesting was, uh, you know, he said private equity companies like complexity. And I, I find that interesting in that, um, you know, there in times like this when there is economic chaos, when there is – 
uh, uncertainty, that can be a really good time uh, for companies to look. Valuations decline uh, in some cases. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see these different, different um, these different outlooks reflected that, you know, it's, it's um, yes, things are going to be really, really rough, but I think the underlying fundamentals are strong, and I think that many people in the sector know that. Um, Rachel, what are your thoughts on um, just the general sentiment uh, among the folks that you've been interviewing? You've talked to a lot of um, a big C-suite folks in the, in the past couple of weeks. What are you hearing from them and their thoughts on where things are going? Yeah, and I agree. There's sort of a um, positivity being revealed, I think, in this sector. Although I, I find it hard to tell whether that's just, um, you know, whether that's that sort of wanting to be more positive, a sort of conscious switch to being more positive, because really you don't have a lot of choice but to sort of move forward, I suppose, or admit defeat. Um, so of those two options, I think you're always going to, you're always going to, be positive and try and move forward. So I think in that sense, it's sort of hard to tell uh, how people are really feeling inside their heads, but certainly outwardly, um, there's more positivity, I think, than there was um, even a month ago. Um, and we're, we're sort of seeing, you know, because I think people are finding direction and they're finding how they can adapt. And I think the biggest challenge that people now have is, is adapting fast enough, because I think they have found that is market for them. Um, whether that's in their traditional markets, whether that's in their traditional products, um, that's that's up for debate, and that's and that's certainly changing. But but there is market, and if they can adapt operations, um, then they're seeing that, that there's still space uh, space for seafood and and space for growth, as you say. Um, we've seen I, there was a, there was a story this week that we covered uh, that that Maui in. Uh, in the US, well, in, in North America, at least, had, had struck a deal with uh, Walmart in Canada. And this was a deal that they'd set up, I think, back in September last year. So it was it was already in the works um, to launch fresh skin pack products across Walmart stores in Canada. Um, they pushed ahead with it. I, th I think they were sort of dubious about whether they, they should, given the coronavirus, but they pushed ahead with it. And it's been incredibly successful. I think sales were triple what they had expected. Um, so I think people are seeing things like that. They're seeing new spaces to work in, and that's giving them that's giving them hope for the future. So I, yeah, that's certainly an interesting thing that's coming up. I'm curious what your conversation with uh, Pilar Cruz, she's the president of Cargill Aqua Nutrition. Um, what was what was her take on um, kind of looking from that larger kind of agribusiness point of view that she brings? What was her general take? I mean, she, she seemed to be, uh, at least in the story that you wrote, she seemed to be generally positive about the overall trends and that that would give seafood a boost. But, but then again, she also was kind of cautioning that, you know, seafood does need to change. Um, but did you get the sense that she was feeling positive about the sector longer term? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is the head of the aquaculture division, so I suppose she, she, she should look to be positive about it. But um, yes, absolutely. Uh, she had interesting perspectives because obviously she's worked across Cargill, sort of different um, protein segments. So she could kind of give that context. Um, so, yes, yeah, she, she definitely sees the need for consolidation of the sector, uh, which is something we, we've spoken about a lot. I know on these on these podcasts and, and on our on our site. Um, but, but yes. 
uh, general trends are going to give seafood a boost going forward. And again, this is something we've mentioned before, but, um, you know, consumer interest in sustainability, in, in traceability, uh, in, in healthy food um, is definitely going to impact the seafood sector positively. And this is something also that, that when I spoke to Darian McBain um, at Thai Union, their global sustainability director at Thai Union, um, she also mentioned the same. The sort of new strand of the sustainability initiative is healthy food and how that has a bigger picture within the sort of environmental context. Um, so how it's all very sort of inextricably linked, um, that, that healthy food consumption amongst consumers is directly linked to sort of a healthy planet. Um, and this is something, this, this tie-in, this bigger picture tie-in is something that, that both of them, both Pilar Cruz and, and Darian are sort of seeing uh, in the consumer context, in the stakeholder context. So this is something that plays to seafood strengths for sure. Yeah, I, I noticed too, you know, even though uh, Amazon sort of pushed back or kind of tamped down a bit, it's uh, pure launch was Am with Amazon Fresh. Um, you know, they still have a pretty uh, large line uh, of, of chilled uh, prepacked seafood that they're selling uh, under Amazon Fresh. Um, you know, Atlantic salmon, they have tilapia, they have, you know, um, they have trout. So so they're still moving ahead. And, and I'm assuming that given the fact that I cannot move around my house without being followed around by a movie ad for... Uh, for what they're selling on Amazon Fresh, either they prepaid for all those ads <laughs> and can't get their money back from Amazon, or uh, it's still you know it's just in a holding pattern. It's going to launch, but uh, but but given the fact that Amazon Fresh has kind of um, put together uh, a relatively strong lineup of um, chilled prepacked products um, under the Marine Harvest brand, interestingly enough. Um, that does show that there's uh, that there's um, you know demand for that, right? Uh, so tell us a bit about uh, Volker Kunsch. You interviewed the uh, Sanford CEO, and what was his view? He's obviously uh, more, uh, much more on the wild side, um, and in a in a country that's handled the the coronavirus very very uh, admirably, I think, compared to other countries. So what what was his view? Yeah, again, he was he was pretty positive. Um, th their financial results had come out uh, recently for their for their first half, um, and they'd they'd had some struggles in their sort of whitefish segment in their whitefish wild catch segment, which is why why I contacted him. Um, but yeah, but he's generally positive. So they've had to move pretty fast. He said uh, into different products. They've really expanded their online retail line. They were they were already doing that. Um, under their Sun Sanford and Sons brand, um, but it was much smaller, and, and coronavirus has really pushed them into expanding that, and also into expanding sort of retail um, packaged products. Because he, he sort of iterated that um, that consumers they wanted a product these days that sort of hadn't been touched between you know processing plant and their frying pan or whatever, because you know. People are people are fearful right now about about all kinds of things. So um, so yeah, they've really expanded that, and 
you know, he, he also said that their strength as a company had always been a diversity of product, right? Because obviously they have a hand in, in salmon farming too, um, as well as, as well as the wild caught sector. Um, and yes, and that's really played to their strengths, I think, because it gives them a different, you know, it, there's always something that they can fall back on if something else isn't working. And I think with coronavirus, that's really worked out well for them. Um, so from his point of view, they're going to sort of increase their diversity or at least remain very diverse in, in their products and in their sourcing and in their geographies. So, yeah, yeah, again, positivity um, and, and seeing those opportunities for expansion and growth. Yeah, well... You know, let's see. I, I think, like you said, you can't you you can't be operating in these sectors and be negative uh, about the future. That just doesn't uh, doesn't help anybody. Um, but I, I do think, as we've all settled into um, a little bit more certainty about uh, things, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but a little bit more certainty that some of the some of the things uh, that we are going to um, that we're, we're going to, to need are still going to be there. And food uh, and healthy food is certainly one of those. And we've seen, um, yeah, explosions in retail sales of seafood. Um, it does seem to be, you know, there will be a, a sort of a, a reaction for sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, think it's, uh, I, I think it's generally um, a little bit of positive news after a lot of uh, really negative news about the... Um, about the the state of the uh, the food economy anyway um, since the beginning of the crisis. Uh, so let's shift a little bit to um, to coronavirus outbreaks again uh, briefly uh, because we need to touch on that. Uh, there's been a couple of this week, a uh, couple this week that have still kind of um, you know continue to cause a lot of concern. Um, John, I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about American Seafoods, um, and that outbreak expanded to uh, 85 people, and they're testing other uh, other vessels right now, um, and, and there may be uh, maybe news on that relatively soon. But what are the implications of a vessel, uh, when a vessel gets, um, gets hit by these? What, what does it mean? Uh, we're trying to... to to talk to companies around the world about how to, what is the best protocol for how to keep uh, crews safe, and what does it mean when there is an outbreak? What's the what? What is Americans saying the result is of that? Well, I you know I don't think they fully know the the boat that you were talking about was originally in Bellingham uh, last week, uh, offloading some hake, but it's been taken back to uh, Seattle and is in lockdown, and I believe the crew is quarantined either on the boat or in a facility nearby. So the immediate impact, of course, is the boat's out of circulation, out of work, because um, as far as I understand, there has to be at least a two-week quarantine for all these uh, crew once they test positive. And I believe they have to test positive or test negative, I'm sorry. I believe they have to test negative for corona twice before um, before they can leave. So this boat, you know, the, the factory trawler isn't going anywhere um, right now. And, you know, the news we're looking at could indicate that maybe um, other boats are in the same situation. So 
you know, the poss- there's possibility that um, portions of the Pollock fleet won't be, certainly won't be up there by June 10th when the B season opens, but um, could be de- delayed substantially. And, um, you know, that could have market implications depending on how many boats we're talking about. Certainly will have financial implications on the companies themselves. You know, American has five Pollock vessels and, you know, one one is down temporarily. And if others are involved, you know, that's not a huge fleet. Um, so it could get pretty serious pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a problem when you when you have these cases and they're, they're uh, in in areas that are dense with other seafood companies or when you're in an area that's that's completely self-contained like a factory trawler um cook this week had its first uh reported cases of COVID 19 uh at their subsidiary icicle seafoods in unalaska down um, in, in dutch harbor um so that uh, first first cases in that remote community as well. That's you know miles away from a, a major city, uh, hundreds of miles away from a major city, uh, only by air. Uh, I think we're starting to see some of the uh, dynamics um, playing out right now that everyone's really worried about. Uh, I think the big things heading into this these summer months. Um, certainly, all eyes are on Alaska right now. Um, and when you start to see these outbreaks happen, um, it's getting scary. I have a hard time seeing how we're not going to be uh, running into quite a bit more of this as the year goes on. And, and the question will be whether or not those plants are going to continue to operate when these outbreaks do happen. Um, so uh, that still remains unclear um, what amount of, of COVID um infections would kind of prompt closures but apparently there are at least perhaps some i mean john you're going to look into this but apparently there are some potential protocols even if they're by companies as to you know when they get a certain number of cases and uh that they might close down yeah i mean we're we're understanding that you know uh some of the salmon plants in alaska have some internal policies that do they set a number for how many what percentage of the uh, staff could be tested or could test positive before um, they really had to shut the facility down. Now, that may be to control the further spread uh, on one hand, and it may be that the operations just uh, aren't feasible with, you know, so many workers unavailable. So it's, it's really worrisome as I sit here and I look up, you know, up to Alaska for the summer salmon season because you know you know as well as i do there's hundreds of people packed in those uh canneries uh staff and you know the uh, american seafoods uh boat showed us one thing when you get people that close and packed in for that period of time it's the virus seems to really ignite and spread quickly so let's hope not god i hope not but um We'll see. Yeah. I mean, you know, one one thing, we have talked to a couple of people that have, just to, to sort of end things on a more positive note, we have talked to some people that have um, put together some pretty impressive protocols, um, and we're trying to 
report about those more so that we can share some of those uh, best practices in a sense. But, um, you know, uh, Martin Sullivan, the CEO of Ocean Choice International in Canada, they uh, they put in some protocols in January, he said, very, very early on. They haven't had an outbreak yet, but um, but we have a story coming up next week about their vessel protocols. It's really interesting. Um, another one, too, is Ocker Biomarine, uh, the krill harvester. Yeah, they've, they've put a lot of money, millions of dollars, into organizing their cruise shifts and how they, they get uh, workers on and off those vessels, which fish down in Antarctica. So, you know, the, the, the amount of money that people are putting into this and the precautions people are putting into it, boy, it sure looks in hindsight um, that, that that amount of money that they, they spent was, was money well spent. So, yeah. Well, all right, folks, we'll leave it there, and, uh, and we'll be watching closely on all the coronavirus news, but also uh, all the other news out there, because, again, there is a lot to cover, um, and there, there is some, um, some opportunities for seafood companies in the middle of all this, uh, all this struggle and chaos, and it has been a, a rough period of time, particularly here uh, in the United States with, uh, with all of our, our social struggles as well. So... All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rachel. And we will speak to you next week.